This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Here we go. Welcome to the 1,000 Hours Outside podcast. My name is Ginny Urich. I'm the founder of 1,000 Hours Outside. And Michael Easter is back with us today. Welcome. I'm back. I'm happy to be back. It's always great talking to you. Should be fun. I got really cool points last time because my brothers and my dad had both read The Comfort Crisis and didn't know that I had gotten a chance to talk to you. So they were super thrilled about it. In fact, my brother and my dad, they went on a trip and they uh, hiked the Grand Canyon. My dad retired last year. And so they listened to the podcast episode on their travels. Amazing. They thought it was so cool. So thank you. Amazing. Huge thank you. Comfort Crisis, such a phenomenal book. We talked about that last time. And you have a new book out since, Scarcity Brain. Phenomenal. I learned so much just out of both your books. So many things. Fix Your Craving Mindset and Rewire Your Habits to Thrive With Enough. Huge congrats to you on book two. You are influencing people in these really substantial ways with the books that you're putting out. So just want to say thanks for that. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate you reading them. I'm glad your family read it too. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool. And then we all come together over those topics, which is a really special bonding thing. I want to tell you two things. First, I got a Go Rucksack that was based out of the Comfort Crisis book. And (laughs) this is embarrassing, but I'm going to tell you anyways, I upped my plate to 20 pounds yesterday. So oh, really amazing from 10 to 20. It took me a full year but I finally did that. But what a change. It's one of those things actually that helps facilitate relationships because people come up and ask me about it very often. What is that? Why are you doing it? And then I can refer to what you've talked about, especially for women and their skeletal system, all that stuff. Amazing. And then wherever we are, our kids will always yell, I'm a two percenter. I love that. And they run the stairs. So good. I love hearing that. And I agree. I agree on rucking too, because you can walk with anyone, right? If I'm with my wife, she may not want to ruck, but I'll throw on a ruck and I'll get a little more of a workout. So I don't have to go on a run without her or something. And we can have a conversation as we go. And so I think it's a good way to bond. And I mean, that's how humans have always bonded, right? Go outside, do some sort of physical challenge together and talk about it. Talk about your life. Talk about anything along the way. Yeah. It's really neat when you can take substantial things out of an author's work and make changes and see the effect of those changes immediately and stuff that you can stick with. And that's what I love about your work. People can sign up for your newsletter, which is fantastic. The two percenter (laughs) is really catchy. So go over to eastermichael.com. People can find that there. But this new book, Scarcity Brain, you traveled a lot for this one. I did. Wow. Baghdad, Bolivia jungles, New Mexico monastery, the Montana backcountry. How did you know where to go? That's a great question. No one's asked me that. Uh, So a lot of it just depends on what topic. So my books, if people aren't familiar, I kind of take a big idea and then I interpret it a lot of different ways. So for example, with this book, the overall question is, you know, why can't humans seem to get enough? Mm -hmm. We're super consumers of food, of information, of stuff, of the number of people we can influence, of all these different things. So the book really looks at, well, why that is. Every chapter explores one big thing that we're sort of built to crave that we tend to overdo, but that in the context of today, where we have an abundance of all these things that we're sort of built to crave, 
that can hurt us in the long run if we overdo it. A lot of it just comes down to, okay, I know I have to say, talk about food and what are the consequences of our new food system and the fact that humans are very much wired to overeat and what happens when we don't do that? And so for that, I had just come across, uh, that's the chapter I went to Bolivia. I had just come across this study that discovered this tribe in the Amazon with the healthiest hearts ever recorded by science. That's very much an end because heart disease is very much a consequence of our modern diets and modern lifestyles. And you know, when I say the word heart disease, people go like, okay, that's boring. But here's the thing is that heart disease is by far the thing that is most likely to kill a person. It is the number one killer of people worldwide. We don't think enough about it. We don't talk enough about it. And so if you, you can learn to sidestep that, I mean, that's going to add years to your life. Because of that, you know, I'm a journalist that very much I don't um, want to be behind, like I didn't get into journalism to report from behind a screen. Mm -hmm. So I always go there. And that led me to Bolivia, which was a really fun jaunt into the jungle. Isn't that where you stepped in the ants? Oh, yeah, that was so bad. <laughs> you know, all the people are like, okay, I had this guide with me. Don't step off the trail. Whatever you do, don't step off the trail. Mm -hmm. I go, okay. And then I step off the trail and <laughs> I, I immediately find out why they, they say that because there's all of a sudden my leg is like on fire and there's just a million ants crawling at my leg, biting me. Oh man, good times. <laughs> well, and then the one place you went, you said, I mean, it's like, these are sort of dangerous things. You went to Baghdad, Yep. the nice hotel was full mm -hmm. and you're in this spot where it's a little iffy. It's a little iffy. Uh, so that chapter really looks at... um addiction and how, you know, Baghdad is a really interesting, and Iraq in general is an interesting case for addiction and why addiction rises because we've typically in the US, we've kind of seen addiction as being caused by two things historically. So for a while, we thought a person became addicted because they're a bad person. They're making like this personal choice, like I'm just selfish, I'm going to do drug, whatever. And that led to things like the war on drugs, which really didn't help drug rates at all. Because of that, we kind of got this new idea which is that uh, addiction is a brain disease. So a person basically has just there's something in their neurochemistry that is leading them to addiction. So they, they don't have really anything to do with it. And it seems like the truth is more in the middle. So I like to think, you know, of course, someone who's addicted is not a bad person at all. But I don't think it's quite accurate to say that people are just a slave to their brain chemicals. And there's no decisions that go into that. I think what happens with addiction is that choice gets constrained but there's still a level of choice. And so for addiction to rise, so then you have to say like, okay, well, well, why would someone make that choice then? For addiction to rise, you basically need three things. You need a population who is in some sort of pain, like psychic pain. Mm -hmm. You need few productive ways to manage that pain. And then you have need to have a substance that solves that pain in the short term. Mm -hmm. So in Iraq, it's like people have just lived through a war there's not many great resources to deal with the trauma of that. You didn't have drugs in Iraq for a very long time for political reasons. And then after um, the fall of Iraq and the fall of Syria, you have this influx of all this, uh, this drug called Captagon coming across the border. So you have this huge surge of drugs and then you just see addiction just boom, just take off. And so it really sort of gets to the conditions for that to happen and hopefully offers people you know, lets people know that there is choice. And I also see addiction as kind of being on a spectrum too. And it's not just right. drugs and alcohol. There's like all sorts of behaviors that people get hooked on from gambling to social media to even things that are seemingly good, like exercise. People can get addicted to exercise and it can impact their life. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's just kind of a different way of, of looking at it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of the main problems of today 
is dealing with how we feel inside and finding, I think, better ways to cope. You give so many, that, that's like the whole thing about you is like you have these practical things that someone could latch onto and I can change this tomorrow. Or I can change it today. I can take the stairs today. I can do these things today, find better coping mechanisms. Your books are fascinating because you've gone and done all this research, but then they're also very practical. Okay, I was super interested about the slot machines. I had no idea. The slot machines did not used to be the main thing. No. So can you tell us what changed? That was so fascinating. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's it's useful to know that I live in Las Vegas, which is a good place to study slot machines and see that people play slot machines for hours and hours on end. It's crazy. So slot machines, they weren't at all popular before 1980. In casinos, they were generally sort of thrown into the corner. They didn't even have stools because people wouldn't play them long enough to need to sit. So then the question is like, okay, why? And it's because slot machines were boring. They used to be designed where you would bet on a single row of symbols, Mm -hmm. but they also had physical spinning reels. So you can only fit so many symbols and there can only be so many combinations. So for casinos to make any money on them, people would never win. Like you would play 20 games and you would maybe win some money on one game. I mean, it's very boring, right? It's like, imagine you hit a button over and over and over and nothing happens. It's like, why would you do that? Then in the 80s, you have this guy come in who sort of takes a cue from the video game industry and he realizes, oh, what if we were to put slot machines behind screens so they become digitally? Mm -hmm. And when he does that, he does this really brilliant thing where he allows people, he'll display, say, like five rows of symbols. And he'll let people bet on all sorts of different rows and lines of symbols. So you could make, say, 40 bets on a single game. Mm -hmm. And so now all of a sudden, the probability that you will win something on a game, it increases like crazy, goes through the roof. It goes to like 40%. But the catch and (laughs) the reason that slot machines make casinos so much money is that most of the time that you quote unquote win, you actually win less than you bet. So this is called a loss disguised as a win. So for example, you might bet a dollar and say one or two of the lines when you say 40 cents. So you've actually lost money, but the slot machine still does its amazing, you know, it, it jingles, the lights go off. It makes you feel like, oh, this is great. I've won something. What's fascinating is it seems kind of crazy, but when neuroscientists do studies of people, they find that our brains respond to these losses disguised as wins the same way they do normal wins. So what happens is people will play a game, play a game. It's like, oh, something interesting happened. Play a game, play a game. Oh, something interesting happened again. And what happens is that over time, it just becomes this slow burn where all of a sudden you go, oh, well, now I've just lost my $50, but I had fun doing it. And it took me a little longer than it would have. And after those uh, inventions, slot machines start to make up 85% of the casino floor. Another crazy stat is that people spend more on slot machines than they do books, movies, and music, music combined. Unbelievable. $30 billion a year and rising. Yeah. 10% a year. Yep. And you said, though, that the casinos only have a small margin then. And so they're relying on volume. You went to a place that was like a fake casino, but it was like the whole thing. Like they had the hotel mm-hmm. and they're researching. What? Yeah. <laughs> what is this place? This is so interesting. So this place is in Las Vegas. Yeah, it's just like you said, it's a brand new, fully working, regular casino. 
but it is used entirely for research on human behavior and how people behave in casinos, more or less. Mm -hmm. It's funded by the gambling industry and a lot of big tech companies. They'll bring study participants in. They'll have them do things that you would normally do in a casino. Like we're going to have you sports bet. We're going to have you play slot machines. We're going to have you stay in this hotel room, whatever it might be. And then we're going to measure how these subtle changes that we make to the casino influence what you will bet later. So it's really sort of like this lab to sort of figure out how do we get people to spend more money in a casino resort. It's really fascinating. Yeah, I had no idea that that existed. This book is fascinating. I always love because I learned about all sorts of new things in your book. This slot machine, this fits this scarcity loop. Yes. Right? Because this is quick repeatability. Can you explain that? Yeah. So the scarcity loop, it effectively explains why people get hooked on slot machines. It also explains why people get hooked on a lot of other things (laughs) as well. So the scarcity loop is a three-part behavior loop that leads people to quickly repeat behaviors, even if those behaviors are irrational in the long run, like slot machines. So it's got the three parts. The three parts are opportunity. You have an opportunity to get something of value. So with slot machines, it's money. You have unpredictable rewards. This means that you know you're going to get that thing of value at some point, but you don't really know when. And you don't know how valuable it's going to be. So if you think about a slot machine, when the wheels are spinning, could be a total loss. You could win maybe a dollar for your $2 bet, or you could win like $20,000. There's this crazy range of outcomes. And that keeps people really, you just want to know what's going to happen. Like this is the definition of suspense. What is going to happen? I don't know. I know that something bad could happen. Something okay could happen or something really, really, really good can happen. Uh, And then finally, quick repeatability. So you can repeat the behavior immediately which is unique to slot machines. So you can just over and over and over. Now, the reason that this system is really important is because it's what makes a lot of other habits that people get hooked on work as well. So social media, it really runs off the scarcity loop. It's got opportunity to say, get likes or meet people. And then you've got unpredictable rewards. If you post, you don't know how many likes you're going to get. You could get a couple or you could, oh my God, you could go viral. And this is amazing. And then quick repeatability, you check and check all day because you want to know what's happened. It's just like playing a slot machine, but it's also in dating apps. It's in being put in personal finance apps. It's in our food system. It's in all these different parts of life now. And it all, I think really figuring that system out, it really started in Las Vegas. And once Las Vegas figured it out in the eighties, a bunch of other industries went, oh, well, that's interesting. What's going on over there? And they started applying it to a lot of different parts of our lives. And you said, once you look for it and you know it, then you start to see it crop up. I feel like in a small way, it reminds me of cards like garbage pail kids or sports cards or the kids get Pokemon. Totally. It feels like gambling, but what's not there is the quick repeatability because you have a limited money, especially if you're 10, you can't just keep buying the decks, but there is that what's going to be in there. You see it start real young. And I remember feeling that even as a kid, what's it going to be? What's going to be in my Happy Meal? What's going to be in my cereal box? What's going to be the toy? So interesting to take note of it. And you talked about something in here that I'd never heard of and I thought was fascinating. You said when we are got all these cravings, you say people overlook subtraction as a path to a more fulfilling life. And you told this phenomenal story about a Lego with there's Ezra and he was three. Can you tell us that story? I thought it was yeah. so meaningful. So there's a there's this guy whose name is Lighty Klotz and he's a engineering professor at the University of Virginia. This guy's like one of the best engineering minds in the country. I mean, he's got 
grants from all these different places like the World Bank, like the UN, like he's just the guy for engineering. So one day he's uh, sitting down with his son who is three years old and they're playing with Legos and they've decided they're going to build this bridge out of Legos. What they've done is they've made the two pillars and then they go to attach the span of the bridge to the pillars and they realize that the bridge is messed up because one pillar has more Legos than the other. So the span is at like this weird ang angle, right? So Mr. Smarty Pants, PhD engineer, he goes, all right, I know how to fix this. And he turns around, he goes to get more Legos to elevate the shorter pillar. And when he turns around, he realizes that his son, who is three years old, has solved the problem. He's simply just taken some Legos off the taller pillar. And this is the better answer. This is what's important is this is the better answer because now they have not only is the span level like they want it, but they now have more resources to use for other projects, right? They solve the problem using fewer resources. And he's like, oh my God, I didn't even think about that. So what he does is he starts taking this bridge around the campus of University of Virginia. He has it all messed up. And when he sits down with his colleagues who are also engineers, when he sits down with engineering students, he goes, okay, here's this bridge, fix this. And every single one, tries to fix it by adding more Legos to the shorter pillar. And so he's like, what is this? This is a thing, right? Like, why are we always adding? And so long story short is that this leads him to conduct a bunch of studies where he shows that basically humans are wired to add. So he would give people all these different problems to solve. Every single time, the right answer to the problem, the more efficient answer would be to subtract resources rather than add resources. But every single person added. Wow. And so the big picture is that humans are very much wired to add. Mm -hmm. When we face a problem, we go, okay, what can I add to this to solve the problem? We rarely think of subtraction. So it's not that one is any inherently better than the other. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that if we don't even think of subtraction, which is a very simple way to solve a problem a lot of the time, we're going to miss all these possible solutions that might be better. Mm -hmm. And this is more and more, more information, more food, more posts on social media. This is the age that we live in. So that's something to pay attention to is just choosing less. Everyone wants to start their year off on the right foot. And for me, that means making sure I'm eating well and have enough energy to do everything I want to do. But I'm not going to run to the butcher every day to get a fresh cut of quality meat. That's why Good Chop is such a lifesaver for our family. Good Chop offers fully customizable boxes of high-quality meat and seafood delivered to your door on your schedule. Their products are vacuum-sealed and frozen at peak freshness, so you can stock your freezer and cook when you want. We had a somewhat last-minute get-together recently, and it was so incredibly convenient to just head to the freezer and pull out a couple bags of Good Chop's hamburger patties to whip up some burgers quickly. They were so delicious. Besides being delicious, it's important to know it won't cost you a fortune either. Good Chop's price per meal starts at just $3.74. Go to goodchop.com slash outside120 and use code outside120 to get $120 off across your first four boxes. That's code outside120 at goodchop.com slash outside120 for $120 off. Goodchop.com slash outside120 code outside 120. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. 
Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So get started today and get after your goals. Some of the things we love about Factor are their two-minute meals. You can fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. Our kids love the pancakes, smoothies, and more. And there's a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, including midday bites. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And remember, to sign up and save, we've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash outside50 and use code outside50 to get 50% off. That's code outside50 at factormeals.com slash outside50 to get 50% off. You also talk about making big changes, that sometimes we need to make a big change in order to change these loops, to change these habits. I thought that was a really good solution too. Like, okay, so it's a couple things. Learn better coping mechanisms and make, I mean, I had it bolded with exclamations. Make big changes, like take courses, pour yourself into books. I kind of feel like this is what you did. Yeah. Totally. So, I mean, so the part of an addiction is, uh, was really interesting. So I, um, I don't drink anymore. I've been sober for nine years. That was a good move for me. And, um, when I think about how I had to get over drinking, it was that I really had to make these radical changes in my life. Like if nothing changes, nothing changes, but this of course, doesn't just apply to drinking. It's like, I think that a lot of times today, there's a lot of ways to sort of escape and to deal with your problems today in a way that doesn't really move your life forward, right? It's very easy to choose sort of short-term comfort at the expense of long-term rewards. So when people, for example, if you get stress out or you have some larger problem in your life, a lot of times people will like, they'll eat to cope with their emotions. They will spend too much time on social media. They will gamble. There's all these avenues of escape we have today. And they all tend to fall into this scarcity loop that I talked about, which is just sort of this like ancient thing that humans tend to get hooked on. Mm -hmm. And the answer to get out of it is really, I think you need to find what the underlying problem is. And it's usually that there's kind of something missing and you need to solve this big problem. And that's going to require like these big changes, asking hard questions. It's going to require that you do the opposite, that you have to do something that is very uncomfortable in the short term in order to get a long-term benefit. And you see that people follow you. You're out running in the mountains with your dog and you're up early writing books. And you can see that you took something that was a dead end and detrimental and took it out and filled in with these things that give a lot of life and consequently give a lot of life to other people too, because they're really inspiring. And that's in and of itself is inspiring to look and to see, look, I mean, I would imagine that when you changed your life and you said, I'm going to stop doing these things, I'm going to fill in these other things, you probably wouldn't have been able to see like, well, nine years from now, I'm going to be traveling the country on these huge podcasts. I'm going to be going to the jungle and getting bit by ants. Like you can't see that that's what's going to come you wouldn't be here if you wouldn't have changed those habits. Oh, totally. Yeah, you, you have no idea. But I mean, I think that really, I mean, when you're kind of in the thick of it, you do know it's not ultimately fulfilling, mm-hmm. right? And you kind of have this moment where you have to do things that are going to lead to change. And those things are often scary and tough in the short term. But the reality is, is that there's this whole open and infinite world of possibilities that just you don't even see. Mm-hmm. And you have to be willing to sort of walk into that wilderness 
to figure out what's out there. Mm-hmm. There's like this, um, the legends around the Holy Grail. There's a scene where like all the knights of the round table are at the, um, they're at the table and they decide they're going to go after to find the grail. And they all decided that it wouldn't make sense to one, go together or two, to go into a known path into the wilderness because they realized they each kind of had to take their own path and they had to go to the darkest point in the wilderness in order to find that bigger thing. And so it's like the grail is just a metaphor. It's not an actual thing. It's like this larger thing that you have inside yourself that is there, but you just kind of have to, you have to like go in and find it. I do love that you led the way with your own life. I think that that makes things seem more attainable to your average person. It's not like you came at it from, you are an expert, but you came at it from experience and you did it. And I think a lot of the power in your books and your writings come from that. And you still do it. You continue to do it in an age where it is really easy to fall back into scrolling on social media or the things that don't really fulfill us. Let's talk about obesity because it's in the book and it's always a good topic at the beginning of the year to talk about. Mm -hmm. I think for me, that wrecking is really it took me a, a while to figure out how to incorporate that into my life, which sounds silly because it's just putting on a backpack. Mm-hmm. You forget it or whatever. But you have a lot of practical ways to make sustainable, and I think that's the point, sustainable life change. So for someone who's struggling with their weight, which is a lot of us, including myself, what advice do you give? I think that, um, well, I love the fact that you. it took you a year to jump up to 20 pounds. Like, you know, you you sort of discounted that at the beginning. But to me, it's like, that's a more normal and sustainable and practical path than I think we often get marketed today. When you look at like what a marathon training program, it's like 12 weeks. It's like, that should be like a year to do that. I think people oftentimes will set like these big lofty goals and it's kind of just this arbitrary number. Like I'm going to lose X pounds in Y days. Mm -hmm. It's like crashing into behavior change is never going to last. It's way better to just go, you know what? I'm going to rock with one pound one day a week, then go, okay, 30 pounds, seven days a week. Because once you sort of do that with that sort of light load, you get, okay, that wasn't so bad. I can do this. Maybe next week I'm going to do two days. And then maybe the week after that, I'm going to do two days, but with two pounds. And that's just like such a better way to try and make changes. I think that humans are very much wired to want results quickly. Like we need the results quickly. That often works against us. So I think sort of trying to ease into things. I mean, this is what I talk about with the 2% concept, right? We always want like the big crash, whatever. But when you look at people who have sort of hit goals, it's usually in these very sort of everyday ways. It's choosing to take the stairs. It's like, okay, I know I have to walk my dogs. I'm going to throw on a ruck. It's going to be like 10 pounds, whatever it is, but I'm going to get a little more out of that. So really finding ways to insert discomfort in your life in a way that isn't going to crush you, but it's just like, you're just making, you're just making life a little bit harder, right? A little bit harder where you can. Yeah. And it works. It really does. It works. And I think the other thing is like, realizing that when a person gambles, when a person (laughs) like I used to over drinks, when a person eats too much, when a person um, spends too much time on social media, there's a good reason for that. It's giving you a benefit in the short term. And by the way, like humans evolved to take short term benefits. So you're doing what humans, uh, humans have been doing that for two and a half million years, and it kept us alive in the past. It's just, we live in this totally wacky new world. And so you have to realize like, you're not a bad person at all. And it's not your fault. But if you want to change, like it is your responsibility too, right? Like it becomes your problem once you realize you need to change. And so I think that that lists a lot of guilt because there's a lot of societal silly narratives, like where, I don't know, we just like, we put value judgments on behaviors and it's like, no, that behavior 
kept humans alive for millions of years. And it's like, we're wired to do it. Yeah. You said addiction is most often a function of circumstances. People use drugs for good reasons. Yeah, I know I did. Gives you short-term benefit, right? Yeah. And the think of my drinking, I mean, the issue is that the problem is the solution is the problem is the solution. So if I have a problem, I'm like, I know what would fix this. And you you drink, but that's also what's causing your problems. But like you have tons of evidence in the past where you're like, oh, well, drinking fixed my problems, at least in the short term. So it's a rational decision in the moment. It's just that you can't see that far downfield to realize like, oh, this is hurting me in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot to think about. What about this concept that I've never heard of either? So many things in your book that we can now quantify influence and how that has changed yeah. the game. So the book, like I said, it looks a lot of it looks a lot at what humans are built to sort of crave and what we tend to overdo and want more of. One of those things is influence and status. For most of these things, the reason that we we crave, you know, whether it's influence or food or stuff or information is because it would have given us a survival advantage in the past, like I was just kind of saying. So if you were a person in the past who had more influence over others, you probably would have lived longer, right? You wouldn't have had to do the crappy menial labor. You would have gotten maybe a bigger share of the food when food was scarce, all these things. Humans still today crave status and influence, but the difference is that humans probably evolved in groups that were about 150 people or less. So there's not that many people that you can influence, right? It's like, you kind of know everyone, you know your place. Oh, totally. Yes. 150. I grew up in a church that was 500 people and you did. You knew who everybody was to a degree. And then I went to school. I went to high school with 6,000 kids. And I mean, what a mess. Oh, yeah. Like you, you don't know anybody. You have no idea who anyone is. You get those into the hundreds and yeah, you have a general sense of who everyone is. Is that that Dunbar's number is 150? Yes, that's the mm-hmm. Dunbar's number. And today, you can not only influence way more people, because we just have big, I mean, we live in cities with like millions of people. But we've also quantified status and influence on social media, right? Like you can see how many followers does this person have? Oh, whatever it is, 33,000. Oh my gosh, they're way more influential than me with my, you know, 2000 or whatever it might be. And I do think that that affects us. And it's we're very much living in a time where we can put numbers on these things that we've never been able to quantify before. It's a little bit strange. Yeah, very strange. You see, we really, really care about what others think of us. Quantification is changing everything. I've never thought about it, but it was a thing when I was a kid, if someone was famous, you didn't really have any chance to become famous. There was no path there. And now I think, well, if you're talented and you can get a viral video like you talked about or on YouTube or whatever you're talented in, you can catch the eyes of this person or that person. I just talked to someone recently, Jefferson Bethke, and he said he came out of college or in college, he posted one video, it went viral, he got book deals, like it changed the whole course of his life. He's written all these books now. So it's this bizarre thing, almost kind of like gambling, right? Like maybe it could happen, but you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, in a lot of ways that's good, right? It's like people have more opportunities to create media and do other things. But I think one of the problems is that the number often influences what we do. I see a lot of people online who will build a following around good information, but at a certain point, they feel like they need to feed the machine. So they're just kind of like putting out information just to put it out. And it's like, this isn't like good, 
Like you just kind of, you're just kind of putting stuff out there to put it out there. It's like, but you got to feed the machine to keep the number going up. So humans really love numbers because they can give us certainty about whether we've done something good or bad, the right or wrong thing. And they often steer our behavior in a way that is sometimes at odds with us. I'll give you an example because I know you have kids is great. So grades, they didn't rise as a way to make sure students knew the material, make sure that students were prepared for the workplace, make sure that students were good human beings. Grades rose in order to make the lives of administrators and employers easier because we used to write these long written evaluations. Like, here's what you did good in the class. Here's what you you didn't do quite so well. Here's what you might think of um, improving in the past. And students like really thrived under this and got the material. But when we got more people in the education system, and then if you try and move from, say, high school to college, and the college has, say, 10,000 applicants, and every applicant has like 20 essays about their performance in all these classes, like the admissions committee can never go over all that. So we came up with the grading system, A through F, and then we distilled that down deeper into GPA. So now it's like an admissions officer can just go, oh, well, this person got a 3.2, and this person got a 3.8. So the 3.8 is clearly better. But that's not necessarily true. And by the way, we don't go to school to get a number. We go to school to get like all these different things. But the problem is, is that students often, I can say this because I'm a professor, students obsess about grades, often at the expense of all these other things we want them to learn while they are in school. Which is fascinating because your point is the grade isn't even for them. It's for the administrators. It's for the administrators. Yeah. I loved this sentence. You said, uh, and actually, I don't know if you said it. Maybe it's quoting someone else. My most promising students usually don't receive an A. Well, that's a huge <laughs> statement. Actually, I've thought about this a lot. My most promising students usually don't receive an A. They're too free thinking or they're gritty hustlers who work 40 hours a week while taking a full load of courses. My most promising students are usually in the B to A minus range. I think that's huge. Yeah, that was, that was actually me. That was you talking about your own students. Yeah, that's what I've noticed. You know, I'm a professor at UNLV and a lot of the students will work 40 hours a week and they'll often, I mean, it's Vegas. So a lot of them work in bars on the strip or whatever, and they're up late. And so their grades will suffer just because of that schedule, but they're very smart. They're there to get things done. And they might actually have way more potential than someone whose parents are wealthy and they don't have to work a job who can have more time to study. And then there's other ones who were just like, yeah, I know you told me to do the assignment this way, but had you ever thought about like, what if I did the assignment this way? And that would be a lot more interesting. And so I did it that way. And you're like, well, I mean, <laughs> that's like not how you should have done it, but you still did a good job. So I kind of have to give you like an A minus here, you know, but it's like, mm -hmm. I want that person to work for my company way more than I want the robot mm -hmm. because that person's going to be like, Hey, I know you didn't tell me to do this, but I noticed this huge inefficiency and all these things we're doing. And like, I figured out a way to save us thousands and thousands of dollars a year. And you're like, oh, okay, well, that's good. Like, that's the person I want working for me. Yeah, this is on page 111. <laughs> People need to pick this up. If you've got kids, this is information that you need to know that this is what you were talking to somebody else about it. Yeah. And you were saying, this is what I've noticed. And you also said the same, yeah, like what you just said, you say the A students are the ones most aggressively recruited for the top leadership positions. But the people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and Oprah Winfrey, they all dropped out of college. Yeah. And I mean, I look, I don't think that grades are useless by any means. But what I am saying is that they've become the end all be all of what students think about, of what parents think about. And that's often at the expense of all these other things we want students to get from a experience in school. 
the point of going to school isn't to get grades. It's to learn the material. It's to be able to apply the material to all these different scenarios. It's to be challenged. It's even to learn how to be a human being with other human beings, like learn how to be social. Like there's all these things that just sort of don't get captured with a GPA scale. And yeah, a lot of them you can't quantify. This goes back to the number piece. You talked in here a lot about this point system and games. And we tried to increase this year the amount of analog things that we did in our life. So a lot of this work is done on computer. A lot of our lives are on screens. So we have been playing more games, just like Rummy. We started doing cross-stitch, which is very formulaic. Amazing. I heard John Acuff, he's an author, talks about how he's an entrepreneur. He loves to build Legos because it's just so systematic. Is this what we should be doing? Things feel really uncertain and unsure. And it makes us feel anxious. Is it a good thing to step into and be cognizant of these more, I guess, simple, I guess, I don't even know how you would describe it, but something that it's more like rule following and you just know what's coming. Is that good for us? Uh, well, I heard a couple things in there. I think two things is that one, when you look at how the average person spends their time now, we spend an average of in between 12 and 13 hours on digital media. And so like, clearly not all of that is bad, but we don't get this opposite coin that is often doing things with our hands and with our mind at the same time. So something like building Legos, um, something like cross stitch. And that's the thing that humans used to have to do all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I do think we lose something by not having those more analog uh, activities, as you put it, which I love uh, the language on that. And then the other thing that I heard in there is we, mm. like you said, we do this. And it's like, if your family is all on their cell phones, sitting on the couch, like you're not really together. Like physically, you're proximate to each other, but you're not actually together. And so I think having these activities that hold people together to do interact with each other for a common cause is really important to building bonds and to just being social. And we know being social is so important for a lot of different reasons, for mental health, for physical health, for all these things. So for example, my wife and I like will play board games, analog board games, just because it's like, it's just a different thing than a screen. And we have like, you're interacting with each other and mm -hmm. you're laughing together. Like there's all these good things that come from that. Yeah, you feel it. It feels good. I loved that this was in the book because it did feel good this year. We played like I said, a lot of card games and rummy and even our youngest when she's seven, she can play and you got your points and you get five and you're subtracting. And I mean, there's something about it. And I like that you touched on that in this book. You, it, you say games offer us a momentary escape from the confusion of the world. Yeah. That does seem like a good thing. Totally. Well, it depends on what the escape is, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that like these classic games we're talking about where you're playing with friends and family, like it's a great way to spend your time because you're like, all together with this common goal, but it doesn't bleed into normal life. When the skies open up while others seek shelter, I embrace the rain. Heading to my favorite hike, the raindrops are like a soothing melody, and my vessies ensure each step is dry and comfortable, turning a simple outing into a rather delightful experience. Whenever my kids and I are stepping into a great outdoors adventure, I love wearing Vessi's Stormburst boots to capture the beauty of springtime landscapes. Their robust style is perfect for our nature excursions, adding a little dash of elegance to our outdoor explorations. This spring, transform how you view wet weather with Vessi. Their Dymatex technology makes their shoes not just waterproof, but a stylish barrier against rain and puddles. Whether it's a sudden downpour or a planned seaside walk, Vessi shoes ensure your feet stay dry and comfortable. Embrace the essence of spring with Vessi. From chic city walks to adventurous treks, find the perfect pair for your lifestyle 
at Vessi.com slash outside and enjoy an automatic 15% off your first order upon checkout. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com slash outside for 15% off your first order. I have been looking for simple ways to form healthy habits and get the nutrients my body needs when my immune system feels unsupported. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics and more, but it's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and ready to face the day. As a parent, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so I can continue to show up for the moments that matter with my kids. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm excited to welcome them as a new partner. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash 1000. That's drinkag1.com slash 1000. Check it out. So in the chapter, I also talk about how one problem that's happened with, you know, the internet and gamification and stuff is that we've tried to gamify things that are just everyday behaviors that have all sorts of different outcomes that we're after. So for example, like when someone goes on social media, like social media is very much a gamified system because you're trying to score points for doing this behavior, which is posting photos or posting tweets or whatever. And that can very much bleed into your entire life and you can escape into it way too often. Um, I mean, the book sort of lays out how that happens and the distinction between sort of, I guess, for lack of a better term, good games and bad games. Yeah, it was interesting to realize like, oh, why am I so drawn to this? Because it's just feels stable and it feels understandable. Because one of the things that you talk about is we just have this unbelievable explosion of information. You had such interesting stats in here about the information that in certain centuries, uh, at the start of the 20th century, this is kind of wild when you really think about it. At the start of the 20th century, humans spent no time taking in digital information. By the 2020s, the average person, this is what you just said, 11 to 13 hours of their day consuming information on screens and through speakers were now exposed to more information in one day than a person in the 15th century encountered in their entire lifetime? Entire lifetime. That's crazy. How are we supposed to handle this? I I love that you put that there were art hanging experts. (laughs) There's so much information out there and it's so hard to make sense of it all. You know, so there's a difference between knowledge and knowledge than we ever have as humans, but we don't necessarily understand how it all fits together and what it all means. You know, we're very much driven to get more information and to always be sort of acquiring information because that would have would have helped us survive in the past. Like if you knew a storm was coming, if you knew, oh, that's where the dangerous lions live, I'm not gonna go there. Mm-hmm. You know, you tend to live longer. But today we kind of have this information itch that we can just constantly scratch and scratch and scratch with all this different. I mean, just think of like buying something on Amazon. You go on Amazon and you type in something and there's like 
50 different products and you're like, oh my God, well, which one do I choose? And then it's like, you've got all these reviews. So then you start reading all this information about reviews, but then you're like, oh, well, I wonder what other sites say. So then you're Googling like, you know, best Tupperware set and like, it's Tupperware. It's all going to cook like keep the stuff in the fridge. But like we can spend so much time just looking for so much information about the most seemingly mundane things in life that I think uh, sometimes it takes up our time and is not how we actually want to be spending our time if we were to pull back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, can't, I want to read just a paragraph here because these books are so entertaining, Michael. You talked about how you were looking at the Smarter Living section of New York Times and it was how to, how to shop for a... <laughs> How to shop for a cake stand. <laughs> you really write it down. How to walk a dog in the rain. How to get the most out of your dishwasher. How to choose the right size storage container. And then you said there was even a deep investigation of a stress-free way to hang art. That story quoted five different art hanging experts. Five of them all helping you solve a problem you probably weren't stressed out about until now. <laughs> <laughs> entertaining but it is true and i like that you use this phrase there was two phrases in here one of them was from the philosopher elijah milgrams who called the great endarkenment which i thought was interesting but you use this phrase slow information which i've not heard you hear slow food your slow childhood how can we have a life that has a slower information there's a study that i read that i found really interesting I don't think you can apply it to everything in life, but I think you can apply it to the important questions. They basically had these two different groups um, find information. The first group, they let them use the internet. And the second group, they had them, they were at a library. So they had them go find a book and find the information in a book and then come back and report it. So of course, the internet group, they just Google this thing and they're like, yeah, okay, I got it. The other group, they got to go, oh, okay. So I got to find where the book is. I got to find the right book. I got to go to the right page of the book. I got to like read the thing. Okay, great. And then I come back and I report the information. Now, the important part is that the people who read the books, who had to go find the information, it was a slower process. They got more information. They got better information. They were better able to recall the information. And when they were tested on it later, they got higher test scores. What this suggests to me is that finding avenues that aren't always the first Google result can be a better way to get information. So you're better able to use it in your life and apply it. So think of it as just like fast food is super fast and we know it's not super healthy for you. I think for like the big questions that you're really trying to figure out, I think finding deeper ways to get the information is really important. And also not, um, you know, usually if something feels like it's just, oh, that's like the complete answer to the problem. Like they've solved it perfectly for me. That's usually, there's, that's usually not a good thing. So the world is very complex. Like it's just a very complex place and answers to all of life questions are ambiguous. And so I think you need to realize like if something just seems is totally straightforward and perfectly presented, it probably has some flaw. And so you need to like use that as almost like a cue to go, oh, okay, well, how might this be wrong? And that's a slower process inherently, but I think it allows you to have better ideas, know the world better and know more about yourself and how to use information. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I've talked to like a handful of moms recently who are writing articles for actual magazines. They're brand new magazines that are physical copies. Amazing. And you get it in the mail well, and all of a sudden there's a change. Well, think about too, like the, and I think about this too much. Um, <laughs> okay. If I'm getting my information from Twitter, 
right? It's like just this stream of tweets that are all 140 or 280 characters. I have no context for what is important and what is not important, right? There's no like pacing. And by the way, it's just this influx of like so much stuff. If I'm in a magazine that's slow, it's like, okay, I know in the back of the magazine are going to be these long features. Like they've thought about these, right? And in the front of the book, there's going to be like this sort of more popcorny stuff, interesting facts. In the middle of the book, there's going to be this sort of like mid-length stories that are, there's all these cues that tell you like, hey, here's what's really important. Here's the sort of simpler, smaller thing that's maybe not as important, but kind of worth knowing. Like you just are, you're there, you're captured and you have the person's attention in a way that they're going to digest and remember more of it, I think. Yeah. I mean, I have made substantial changes in my life. They're all, every one of them is based off of a book and or a conversation like this. Not one off of Twitter or not one off of these headlines that are meant to grab your attention. All of them. And sometimes you read an entire book and you walk away with two or three things that you can use that really change your life in substantial ways. Even though the whole book was interesting, you learn a lot. Like I read a book by Annabelle Abbs called 52 Ways to Walk. Each chapter is, you know, walk backwards and walk in the rain. And, and she goes through all the science behind it. But one of the things she talks about is just breathing through your nose and the nitric oxide. I don't know what makes you healthier. And so mm -hmm. that's a big change. I mean, I have not gotten sick. I usually get sick all the time. So you take this slow piece and maybe it takes you a long time to read that book. And maybe it's only one or two ideas that you get out of it that really you grasp onto, but then you take them into your life and they make substantial changes. So I love that phrase of slow information. It goes right along with slow food and it's something to think about, like just slowing down. <laughs> Where are we getting our information from and slowing it down? Can we hit one more topic just because you're talking about this concept of not being able to get enough? So that obviously leads into the concept of happiness. And you went to a monastery. I had no idea that the average age of a monk is 30. I thought it was all going to be like 60, 70, 80 year olds. The average age is 30. Yeah. Which means if it's average, there's people younger than that. There's like 21 year olds who just go, yeah, this is what I'm doing the rest of my life. Like their life is planned out every single day for the rest of your, their life. And I found that wild and also kind of inspiring that a person mm -hmm. would, you know, be that devoted. Yeah. One of the concepts in there where you were talking about the monastery and going to visit, you said that we can only do four hours of focused daily work, which is pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that research shows that. I think it tracks with uh, a lot of thinkers have written about it, but I think also employers would probably know the same, like employee employers who track their employees, they know it's like, <laughs> People can only really focus and do good work for that amount of time. Like the eight hours a day, you're not really using that for dedicated work. Like people kind of mess around. You have like these useless meetings just to feel like you're doing something. Um, I think the takeaway for the average person is uh, if you know that four hours is kind of like the limit for your attention and doing good work, it's like figure out when are your four hours that are, are your most productive four hours and stack your most important work then and then leave the rest of the day for things that don't take as much thought, more or less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there was a lot in this section at, about the New Mexico Monastery. One of the things you talked about was their rules, not to be drowsy, not lazy, love fasting, don't be a great eater. I've, I've never heard of this stuff. Yeah, it's the rules of uh, St. Benedict, and they govern pretty much every monastery. Yeah, that there are tens of thousands of people who are living this way, and living in a way that's fulfilling. And so it's interesting to know, what a book, what a book, Michael. 
Baghdad, Bolivia jungles, New Mexico. We didn't talk about the backpacking in, Mon in Montana, but a little bit, because you're talking about this is the concept of less. Yeah. So you're talking there about having less. The girl was just like backpacking. Yeah, she's she just kind of goes out with what she needs to survive and she'll go out to the wild for months at a time. Mm -hmm. And she's definitely one of the coolest, most interesting, down to earth, happiest people I've ever met. And it really showed to me that like you probably can get by and be very happy on much less than you have right now. And that goes for everyone. Cause when you think about, I mean, people even 150 years ago, which isn't that much time, you had a house and then you had a few items. Like the average person had three pairs of clothes. The average person now has like 130 outfits. It really just does show that as the world has progressed, we've kind of just gotten more and more stuff. And our definition of what we quote unquote need has crept into more over time. But if you kind of strip that away, like I've, you know, I've been to some pretty wild countries in my travels. And I can tell you, I haven't found really much correlation with happiness and wealth and possessions like ever at all. Yeah, it's fascinating. So you made a lot of changes before you started writing in your life. And now you've written these two extremely influential books for culture for today. What's a change that you've made based on your research for either book that you've sustained and that has changed your life? Mm, that's a good one. I mean, I still, I would say the comfort crisis changed how I thought of movement and exercise forever. So I still rock, I think exercise a lot differently than most people do a lot more time outside because of that book. I mean, I was always kind of outdoorsy, but that the comfort crisis really helped me understand why that's so important. And I would say with this book, it really reframed. Um, it helped me understand behaviors that people tend to overdo that we go, why am I doing this so much? Whether it's social media, whether it's drinking, whether it's buying crap on Amazon, whatever it is, it helped me understand that there's like deep evolutionary reasons for that. And once you become aware of a behavior, then you can start to change it. Mm -hmm. And so it's really helped me just spend my time in a lot better ways. And I've definitely become a product of my books, I would say, using the stuff. I, I mean, because ultimately, like, I don't write books for for you guys, even though I, even though they go out to you, I'm like, I write them to figure out my own dang stuff, you know, and it just so happens that like, I'm not terminally unique. Turns out that like everyone has basically the same problems. So that's pretty convenient for book sales because if they didn't, they would be like me writing a book and then reading it and handing it off. People going like, what the hell is this? Uh, <laughs> so works out all right. That's awesome. And I see it. It's like, I see it in your posts and then I see it in my own life. So huge congrats. Scarcity brain, fix your craving mindset, rewire your habits to thrive with enough. Eastermichael.com. Definitely want to sign up for that 2% newsletter. Be a 2%er and you can yell it out when you're at the we do it at the airport wherever i love it we're a two presenter and we love doing that so thank you so much thank for you for your time thank you for these awesome books thank you so much i enjoyed it If you like this show, there's a decent chance you'll also enjoy The Shameless Mom Academy. Hi, I'm Sarah Dean, the founder and host of The Shameless Mom Academy. The Shameless Mom Academy is a podcast for moms that centers moms more than it centers your kids. I'm not going to teach you how to make baby food or how to make your three-year-old or 13-year-old stop having tantrums. Instead, I'm going to bring you back to yourself. For the last 20 years, I've been helping moms through growth and transformation. Inside the Shameless Mom Academy, I help you identify who you are and who you are becoming. Look, motherhood is hard. It brought me to my knees many times and sometimes still does. 
Returning to who I am and who I am becoming allows me to decide how to show up in all those sticky motherhood moments, but also in all my other relationships and in all the ways I show up in my various communities. So come check out the Shameless Mom Academy wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm willing to bet you'll leave feeling a little inspired and maybe even completely fired up. And you'll probably laugh a few times because I promise we never take ourselves too seriously over here. With 700 episodes to choose from, you're likely going to find something that sparks and speaks to you inside the Shameless Mom Academy.